All right. So out of all the people we have ever interviewed, perhaps Mike Thompson has done the most time in prison, 45 years. Mm-hmm. He has had many documentaries made about his life. There's videos about him that have gone viral. There was some recent controversy, and we're going to get Mike's side of the story on that. And this interview, it, it was urged along by John Abbott, because mm-hmm. John Abbott has watched Mike's stuff, and he he's, he loves Mike's storytelling ability, which is fantastic. And mm-hmm. if you want to hear stories about the early Aryan Brotherhood, the formation of it, you mm-hmm. cannot get closer to the tip of the spear, the Mike Thompson. So we're in for a real treat, and I'm really honored, and thank you so much for spending time with us this evening, Mike. Well, thank you, Sean. I appreciate being here. Now, we've got quite a big audience in the UK, and mm-hmm. other than you know movies like Shot Caller, um, mm-hmm. American History X, where they see these guys on the prison yards, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of surreal for the people in the UK to think that that is actually, you know, actually happens. Mm-hmm. So, so perhaps could you give a, a little bit of the background as to what does happen, you know, and, and what your involvement was in the beginning of all this? Hmm. I'll do my best. You know, I, um, I entered prison in, in the early seventies and I was convicted of a double homicide. Uh, two drug dealers who attempted to kidnap two little girls were killed in the process of that kidnap attempt. Um, my part in that, I always maintained my innocence relative to that. What I did do was I called the man that uh, was the father of the two little girls and uh, told him that uh, his children were subject to being kidnapped for ransom. And uh, after that, I was pretty much forced my hands of it. But the problem was, is that the two individuals that as they attempted to carry out that kidnap plot uh, were murdered and buried. Um, So I went through a trial. I was convicted of all charges. In fact, I was the only one that was. Uh, But I continued to maintain my innocence. The interesting thing about that is after almost 50 years, it's now before the appellate court, and it looks like it's moving toward exoneration. Wow, fantastic. um, It is fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to maintain your innocence, because as you know, they say that everyone maintains their innocence. And uh, so it makes it difficult uh, when, in fact, that is the case. But uh, I came into the prison system, started at Chino. That's the California Institution for Men. And uh, I was designated to go to San Quentin, but they didn't have a, um, a bed available, a cell available. So they sent me to Dual Vocational Institution, which is in Tracy, California. And I was doing all right there. I mean, the idea of being a fish and i was definitely a fish i'd never been to prison never been to jail what year are we talking 1973 and um so i didn't hit tracy until 75 um so that's you know going through the process and and you you have to um psych evaluation and um you know i was illiterate so that made it a little more difficult um i eventually learned how to read and write um, but I went into Tracy and, and I went to work for the chaplain there. And, uh, back then, um, I was raised native. And so that's the, that was my practice. It's called, um, walking the red road. And I did, but it was against the law in this country to speak your language or to practice your native beliefs. 
particularly behind the Iron Gates. You had the three dominant religions, um, Christianity, um, Judaism, and um, Islam. And, uh, but uh, it was actually against the law um, to practice native beliefs. But I went to work for the chaplain. His name was Leon England, and um, he not only started me on the, the path to learning how to read and write, but he allowed me to use the garden between the two chapels um, to practice my ways, which I did. And I had a small prayer mound and, and um, fire pit, and I had a small hand drum and an eagle fan and a rattle. And um, I would go out there and get jiggy with the bear. And um, I would dance and sing, and, and um, so I enjoyed it. Um, unfortunately, uh, Tracy was a stronghold for the Nuestra Familia. And um, I had an altercation, a number of altercations, with the Nuestra Familia, which landed me in Old Folsom. And um, so I was transferred to Old Folsom. But unfortunately, um, under the allegation that I had smuggled a gun um, into Tracy, which actually I had. It was a 38 Smith & Wesson. I had a box of shells, cartridges, 24 cartridges, and I'd made a, uh, a suppressor for the barrel. But um, someone told on me, and uh, so they couldn't find the gun, so they shipped me to Folsom to see if they couldn't um, beat it out of me. Um, they were unsuccessful in that. And um, so Folsom was the big house back then. It's uh, where all your leadership, Black Panthers, Black Guerrilla Family, Aryan Brotherhood, Mexican Mafia, Texas Syndicate, all the leaders were right there in a the hole, and that's where they sent me. I was the youngest person to be in Folsom at that time. And um, I was just a puppy. And so I met, uh, I was, an attempt was to recruit me into the Black Panthers. Uh, some of my altercations in Tracy had preceded me via the inmate grapevine. And um, so Yogi, um, Hugo Yogi Pinnell, who was the uh, leader of the uh, Black Panthers at that time, um, he attempted to recruit me into the Black Panthers. Um, he was Nicaraguan. He wasn't actually black. And um, the um, assumption on their part was that I was Native American. And um, so I denied the recruitment attempt on Yogi's part. And so he had challenged me to a knife fight and we met the next day. And um, we went head up on the yard and um, he lost. And I was shot. And um, so it's, it's really just a matter, Sean, of story after story after story, just at Old Folsom. And then I was sent to San Quentin. And I don't know how deep you want to get into that. Uh, Let's go as deep it. as possible, Mike, because even if we run out of time, we, <laughs> sure. we, we, we could continue this. We could, um, yes. we, 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 I mean, like Jamie Morgan came, we've done about 20 hours with him and John Abbott, mm. 10 to 20 hours with him and mm -hmm. Folsom, San Quentin stories endlessly fascinating and you tell them so well so yeah let, let, let's keep going okay well it it all Folsom. it um the attempt by the black panthers to recruit me like i said was unsuccessful and then my knife fight with yogi um the real problem with the knife fight with yogi was that uh he had challenged me and i had accepted and we met in combat and when he started to lose uh, he ran 
And um, in that uh, atmosphere, you don't challenge a man and then run. And then on top of that, uh, his two, two of his bodyguards attempted to intercede on his behalf, and I ended up getting in a knife fight with them. And then I took a um, M14 slug in the back, which put me down. And um, so after that, um, it kind of paralyzed me. Um, I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't lift my legs. And I was laying in my cell. And I was in what was called a strip cell. So, you know, the guards would slide a tray up underneath the, the door. And it would take me about an hour to turn over. And I'd just put my face in the tray and eat as much as I could. Um, and then it would take me about another hour to roll back over. And uh, the only thing I had in the cell was a hole in the floor. And that was my toilet. And uh, I slept on the cement. But um, the thing I most remember about that uh, was not the discomfort as a result of being shot in the back, but um, the cockroaches would come up out of the sewer, that hole in the floor. And of course, I couldn't do anything to stop them. Um, so I could feel them, you know, the large antennae crawling um, up my leg and into my body. And, you know, it's, I think it's a natural response. You know, you kind of blow air and see if you can discourage them. They weren't having it. They wanted the food on my face. So ultimately I named them and uh, invited them to the party. And uh, so, um, but about 10 days later, uh, staff came and asked me if I wanted to go back out to the yard. And it took me about an hour to get up. I said, yes. And it took me about an hour to get up. And uh, I could only shuffle step. I still couldn't lift my arms and I couldn't raise my legs up off the floor to walk, but I could shuffle. And that's what I did as I shuffled out to the yard. And, and uh, the moment I got through the gate, uh, there was a group of blacks at the top. Whites were over to the left, uh, standing at the black strap iron gate uh, that overlooks Folsom River. And the Mexicans were to the right. And uh, about four blacks broke off from the group as I came through and they took me to the ground and they started stabbing me. And I couldn't defend myself, of course, because I couldn't lift my arms. And um, the interesting thing about that, Sean, is that I knew they weren't going to kill me. First, they were hitting me high, but I could actually hear and feel the knives go through my body and chink the asphalt underneath me. And um, but I knew they were hitting me high and um, they were extremely fearful, um, probably three gunners on the rail. So they were afraid of being shot. So almost as soon as they jumped on me, they jumped off and not without poking me full of holes first. And um, so then, of course, after they jumped off, staff opened fired and um, to no avail, of course. And staff came out with a gurney and wanted to put me on the gurney. And I told them, no, I walked out here. I'm going to walk off. So they had to wait while I managed to get myself up off the ground and shuffle back into the building. But in truth, once I was out of sight of everyone else, I said, okay, you can put me on the gurney now. Um, because it was a little, it was a little tough um, walking. So as a result of that, um, I had, um, at that time, probably 15, 16, maybe 17 head-up knife fights with others uh, as a result of um, having defeated Yogi. Um, but I was approached by the Aryan Brotherhood at that time also. T.D. Bingham was one of, the, one of the more influential members of the um, Aryan Brotherhood at that time. He's now in 
um, maximum security prison, I think, in Colorado uh, with the jihadist. And um, at any rate, so TD approached me and, and, you know, just like Yogi, I liked Yogi immediately. And um, I also liked TD immediately. You know, they were kind of like that, you know, that man's man uh, type persona. And um, so you understood that you were talking to a man and a warrior and both were that. But um, pretty much TD gave me the same spill as it relates to the Aryan Brotherhood. And I declined his offer also. And um, of course, my um, misconception was that I was dealing with racists and, and dope fiends. Dope fiends they were, uh, not so much racists. So I declined and um, went about fighting Black Panthers and BGF as a result of having defeated Yogi. And um, then there were four members, Native Americans of the Aryan Brotherhood at that time, that were on the yard and they approached me. And um, they said, Mike, they said, um, we know you're an old res dog. And I did. I grew up on the reservation. And um, they said, we live better in here than we ever did on the res. Now, that resonated with me because the res I grew up on was tar paper shacks and um, abject poverty. And so that got my attention. And I said, well, what do you mean? And the individual that was actually speaking for the other four, he was a pit river brother and his name was bear. And um, he looked like a bear. He was a big man and he had that deep, you know, resonating bass. I really had to pay attention. His bass was so low. And, uh, but he began to explain to me how they controlled the resources at old Folsom there and, and what that meant. And, uh, so eventually I did join the brand as a result of the um, pitch really that Bear had given me about controlling our resources. Um, you know, that's another story, I suppose, insofar as uh, my naivete. Um, yeah, let's, let's, a, let's expand on that story then. Sure. Sure. It just, um, most of my experiences were at Folsom were, were, about violence you know at that time i weighed probably 280 pounds i'm six foot four um i was trained in martial arts i was raised by a nez pierce half nez pierce half irish elder and who taught me martial arts and um that was actually my saving grace um in prison was the ability that mm, physical prowess if you will um that enabled me to fight and how to use a knife and how to make a knife. And, and, um, so in joining the Aryan brotherhood, um, one of the first things I became aware of was that the vast majority of the members were dope fiends. And while they were bringing in vast amounts of money, um, most of it was going into their arms. And indeed, I think at one point the FBI told me that in 1978, uh, which is within this time frame that I was a member and um, advancing in my leadership potential. It took me about a year to become a leader of the Aaron Brotherhood. And um, that was based primarily on the physical altercations, knife fights that I was involved in. I was shot um, in total. I've been shot 22 times. Um, M14 shotgun, one time with uh, 30-06, and um, 
that's kind of an interesting story because that was a fight with uh, an individual named Roland and uh, he was at Sol- solid ed and um, was a participant in um, what was called um, the solid ed brothers. They'd killed the guard there and uh, the Roland brothers had been shipped to Folsom. Now, you know, I was there with, Black Panthers, BGF, like I said, all those individuals, but also uh, Charlie Manson and his group and and uh, Joe Romero and the Sibonese Liberation Army. So it was um, kind of a, a hotbed of um, militancy and um, what might others might refer to as activism. But I was in a fight with Roland and um, it did not matter what I did to him. It just did not seem to phase him. So in the course of that, I eventually dropped him, but um, there was a guard over in Tower 2, which was off the, I was in the hole, it was actually on the main line, and um, he ended up um, shooting me in the leg with a 30 6 Now that dropped me, but the really interesting thing about the story is that, um, you know, they'd probed the wound and they put me back in my cell and I heard somebody slap the bar box and and um, this guard walked right into my cell. And then he says, um, look, he looked down at me. I was laying on a bunk and he said, um, we all right? And I said, well, I'm going to assume you're the one that shot me. And he said, I did. And I said, well, I got to tell you, man, that was a hell of a shot. And he says, not really. He says, I was aiming for your head. And he hit me in the leg instead. But um that was the only time I was shot with a 30 out six. Um, you know, but the point is, is that he had made that shot. I don't know how many yards away it was, but quite a ways. And all he had was a gold shear bead with um, a full buckhorn sight. There was no scope, no nothing. And so it was really a hell of a shot. Uh, and I was very impressed by that. Now that particular guard many years later became a Lieutenant that I went to work for. And uh, I was the only prisoner that he would allow around him. He just, he did not like prisoners. And, um, but that's getting way ahead of myself. Up up, up uh, to this point in your story, Mike, how many times have you been shot? At this point in my story, um, at Folsom, probably a dozen times. You've already been shot a dozen times by this point of your story. Yeah, well, Talbot, that was the individual guard's name. Uh, he was the first to shoot me. Um, second, um, well, no, the first would have been the Mini 14 from uh, my fight with Yogi because that's right after I got there. And then uh, the leg shot from Talbot was probably six months later. And, um, you know, some of those shots were um, none as serious. The one that I received when I was fighting Yogi lodged next to my spine. They didn't remove it. it took them 30 years. And then and, and, uh, after 30 years, I finally went in and removed it from next to my spine. And I was having some difficulty uh, with my mobility as a result of that slug. And so they decided to go in and remove it. And, um, but I'm thinking in my head, based on your question, uh, how many times I had been shot up to that point, because I was shot I was sent to San Quentin as a result of the last time I was shot, um, uh, Wendell Norris, his nickname was Blue. He and I had gotten into an altercation with about 16 BGF on the yard, and we just stood back to back, but we both had buck knives, and we wreaked havoc that day. 
and um, I was shot again then. But I was sent to San Quentin as a result of that, essentially kicked out of Old Folsom with T.D. and um, Spotsburg and Bobby Moore. So we were sent to San Quentin, and T.D. and I, first time out in the yard, were both shot five times each. Um, so, um, like I say, I can go back and forth here, you know, relative to the idea of being shot and the knife fights. Um, but in total, you know, we counted them at, at one point. I was shot. I've, I've been shot 22 times. Did you, and, did you get uh, used to being shot? No, I don't think that's something you ever get used to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like anything else. Now, um, perhaps more importantly, uh, you anticipate that you are going to be shot when you go out into a knife fight. Uh, back then in the 70s, you could get into a knife fight, an actual knife fight, head up knife fight, um, unless it was in the hole like at Folsom. But uh, you'd have point men and then you go head up with somebody and it could be a rather involved knife fight, even to the point where you could bleed your appoint, opponent. Uh, but um, all my fights have been head up. I'm, I'm not an assassin. I don't strike from the rear or, or anything like that. And, um, but as a result of that, the consequences are such that you realize that uh, when you engage in that type of combat, more than likely you, you are going to be shot. Now, I was fighting with Mexican Mafia in San Quentin, TD and I, when we both took five rounds, and, but that was from a shotgun. But it made hamburger out of both of us. And uh, fortunately, we were both big men. And, and indeed, the doctor that, that um, dealt with the wounds at that time told me that um, had I not had the mass that I had on my back, that it probably would have penetrated my lungs or my heart. And um, so that was my saving grace. So, so these, um, these knife fights then, is it mm -hmm. you're just going to wound someone and, and, and that's your victory or were the fights to the death? Some people do fight to the death. I never had to. I was always fortunate enough to, to defeat my opponent. I mean, there were times when individuals attempted to stab me from behind, and um, I took the knife away from them. And as a matter of fact, I received a lot of criticism uh, for not uh, killing them. But um, I see no value in that. I see no value in, in, in taking another life if you don't have to. Um, but the criticism was that I left them alive to come back another day. And um, that really was never the case. I never had that problem of someone trying to come back and, and uh, finish what they had started. Um, now, that may have been because uh, I remember in one instance, actually, it was an, a, a, another AB member who attempted to stab me on the tear from behind. I took the knife away from him. And um, I put him down, and when he pled for his life, I choked up on the knife and tattooed a circle around his heart with a knife, just as a reminder. Um, now, I understand this sounds me, makes me sound extremely violent, but the fact of the matter is, Sean, I deplore violence. I always have. Um, the problem with it is that I'm very good at it. And in a controlled environment like prison, uh, that's an asset. Um, and it's why I'm alive today. But I would like to emphasize to you and your audience that um, um, I really don't like violence. 
Were you experiencing more violence when you were independent or did it increase when you were with the AB? I had more violence. Um, it's kind of a balance, I guess. You know, it uh, when you're a member of the brand, um, violence kind of seeks you out uh, because you have to uphold your um, power base. And um, particularly with the brand, your power base is predicated upon um, your potential for violence. Uh, that's your currency, if you will, is violence. Um, and of course, it was mine. So um, many altercations as a member of the brand, but prior to becoming a member of the brand, I had my share of, of altercations. And um, also, you know, after I left, I mean, the last attempt on my life was in 2015. And um, I let a fella get behind me, unfortunately. And he did a roundhouse kick and took me off the back of a bench. And I went semi-unconscious. And um, I could hear, but I couldn't see. And um, I was down and he had a box cutter and he grabbed me by the back of my hair and reached in to cut my throat. But I could hear him. So I blocked it and he cut my ear in half and um, he reached in again, choked up on my hair again and reached in again deeper. And I could feel his movements. I could feel his body, you know, through his hands on my hair. And uh, I was able to block it again. And he caught the back of my throat um, one millimeter away from the anterior artery. And uh, the third time he, he came in to cut my throat, he came deeper, I think, to get the windpipe also. And I got my sight back. So when I got my sight back, I took the weapon away from him. And um, in doing so, in truth, um, I thought about breaking his neck. It entered my head. But um, I had taken, by that time, a vow of nonviolence. And so I took the weapon away and I put it up underneath me and waited for staff to arrive. And, um, but that's really the 2015 would be the last time that I was really in a, a violent altercation uh, where weapons were involved. Um, I, um, took a number of beatings from staff when I stepped away from the brand. And, um, but, you know, as you say, um, we're not going to cover 45 years in prison in the limited time that we have right here. So, I guess we'll just have to hit this piecemeal and um, see how that works for us. You said, you know, you said it so casually, I took the weapon away from him. Could you just explain how you did that? Yeah, I actually saw it. When I got my sight back, he was reaching in to cut my throat again. And as he came down with his hand, with the box cutter in his hand, I saw it. So I just took my right hand and I reached in and took him first by the wrist and turned his hand to break his wrist and took the knife out of his hand. Um, and then, like I said, I had um, an opportunity. I went through it in my head um, to break his neck and, uh, but declined to do so. Now, I think what's more interesting in telling you that is the reason I declined to do so is that I actually heard my wife's voice in my head. And my native name is Sky, old man Sky, Skanwikarka. And um, I heard her say, no, Sky. And uh, I listened to her. I still do. Wow. <laughs> Mike, when was the Aryan Brotherhood started and why? 
Hmm. Around 1968, San Quentin, you know, uh, Mexican mafia preceded them by um, a number of years. Um, but 68 was really, I think, the origins of the Aryan Brotherhood, San Quentin. And what you had was, um, well, I actually had this experience, so I'll just put it in that context. Uh, we had a number of neo-Nazis, for instance, uh, at San Quentin, and they had a Fuhrer, and they um, had the really bad habit of talking out the side of their neck. And um, blacks, Jews, you name it. But once they would incite, particularly the blacks, and the blacks would want to get down, they were nowhere to be found. So as a result, what happened was that um, the white population that really had nothing to do with this suffered the consequences uh, at the hands of the blacks. So the idea behind the brand was to really take control of that take control of the white population um, and ensure that they were no longer victimized by other races. Um, but by the same token, um, I had a number of altercations with the neo-Nazis. Um, it, it's perhaps a pet peeve with me, Sean. I, I call them jaw jackers. I cannot, I cannot stand jaw jackers. People that just jack the jaw to be jacking their jaw. And I really don't have anything to say. Um, I mean, you see it on the internet. Um, people, it's as if they've been given a license. Um, and um, that's okay, I suppose. I mean, I, I do believe in free speech. Um, but they have a, a terrible, terrible problem of letting their mouth overload their asshole. And uh, they do it quite often. Uh, without any concern for the consequences. Uh, in prison, it's different. So at that particular time, as it relates to the origins of the Aryan Brotherhood, um, that would pretty much sum it up, uh, was to establish a power base whereby uh, they provided protection uh, for others. Now, as a result of that, that essentially gave them uh, the run of the prison. And uh, they didn't really at that point um, concern themselves with developing an infrastructure or being a part of uh, what's now referred to as organized crime. Um, that was one of the incentives I used toward myself in becoming a member of the brand was to give it an infrastructure and uh, set about to do that. And that's why that uh, in the course of a year, I rose to a position of leadership, uh, not just because of my so-called physical prowess, my ability to fight, but um, also because um, I had brought the idea of building an infrastructure that paralleled um, other factions of organized crime like the, the uh, Italian mafia and others that um, use their power base to not only generate revenues, but to use those revenues to build the infrastructure of the organization. And so I set about that process to do just that. And um, that in and of itself created a lot of problems, uh, particularly when you have dope fiends uh, who want to continue using their drug and um, are now essentially not so much prohibited, but they were given a choice. You can stop using 
commit yourself to the organization it's you know as an organization uh, but if you continue to use then you need to understand that uh, you're going to be considered expendable so that when a mission comes up that um, uh, requires somebody that is expendable you'll be the first called upon um, because you've expressed um, an inability to commit yourself to the organization so um it came from its origins to about mid 70s what we're talking about now so it, it had existed for about seven years there really weren't that many members and in order to become a member um you had to have the ability to essentially stand your own ground uh, by yourself as opposed to you know a group or or anything else um so but again, like I said, the problem was, is that those individuals that had that capability were also dope fiends. And uh, so all the revenues um, generated were going into the arms of the members. And um, it just didn't make any sense. To me, it was completely illogical. Just to get a bit more background then on the AB. Okay. Where does the brand come from? And what were the early influences in terms of tattoos and philosophy? And what did they lift from the German Nazis? Well, contrary to common belief, uh, the brand wasn't uh, about uh, white supremacy back then. I mean, you had uh, T.D. Bingham was Jewish. And, you know, I hear people like, oh, he was only half Jewish. His mother was Jewish. T.D. was Jewish. He had the Star David tattooed on him. And um, he wasn't what he called, he told me, as a matter of fact, is I'm not a practicing Jew, but I'm Jewish and I'm proud of it. Um, you had Native Americans. Um, the four that approached me were, um, uh, three were Pitt River and uh, one was Maidu, you know. Um, so you had Samoans. Um, so this idea of white supremacy, um, it wasn't about that. It was about controlling your resources. And um, every gang that existed behind the Iron Gates, that was their priority, controlling their resources, making money, and um, using that money in some capacity. Uh, for the most part, that was to essentially live large or party. Um, and then if they were called upon. But philosophically, uh, there was nothing there. Frederick Nietzsche, who was German, was German. And, um, you know, the Ubermensch, the Superman uh, precept there, um, there was a lot of study done relative to um, Frederick Nietzsche and von Clausewitz and, and Sun Tzu and Masucci, um, who were all warriors. And so the idea here was that you were supposedly exemplifying a warrior code. Um, the problem is, from my perspective, is that's very difficult to do when you're a dope fiend. Um, because, as we now know, uh, drugs, for the most part, and addiction is a disease of the brain. And it takes over the brain. That addiction takes over the brain. So you're not going to get um, rational thinking associated with that. But... Why it can honestly be said now by others and is that the Aryan Brotherhood is a white supremacist group, a hate group, if you will. Back then, uh, it was still in its infancy. And so that didn't exist. You didn't have fellas with um, swastikas or 
or any of that. Uh, matter of fact, the only association with that was, like I said, with the neo-Nazis. And um, I don't have a lot of respect for them, never have had. Um, so um, it was a warrior code. And um, that was exemplified philosophically through the teachings of individuals like Frederick Nietzsche and von Clausewitz. He wrote a book called On War and uh, Sun Tzu. Uh, Masucci was the um, author of um, The School of Two Swords and uh, Samurai. Um, but the problem, uh, Sean, was that um, the vast majority of the membership didn't really exemplify uh, a warrior's code. Um, it sounded good. Uh, you had the Irish connection. Um, you know, I'm part Irish. Um, I have ancestors still in Ireland. Um, I mean, uh, relatives in Ireland, and my, and my ancestors can be traced back to Ireland, um, as well as Swedish. Um, people ask me all the time, well, do you have any native blood? Um, I don't know. Um, it's doubtful you know i don't doubt that um i have at least two percent neanderthal and um if i have um an indigenous uh, ancestry it's probably neanderthal as opposed to um you know what others might perceive as uh indian and uh Mike, I think I prefer that. Could, could you explain what it means to be a probate and what work you had to put in as a probate? Well, I didn't. You know, when I refused to join the brand, um, I wasn't aware that that was unheard of, that there were people that were striving to be even considered by the brand to become a member um, because it was difficult um, by way of your qualifications. You know, my situation, I'd, I'd gone, engaged in a knife fight with the leader of the Black Panthers the minute I got to Old Folsom. And um, that established not only my credentials, but my reputation immediately, um, particularly in defeating him. He had just come from San Quentin, where he and George Jackson had taken over the adjustment center at San Quentin, took guards hostage along with white inmates, cut their throats. George Jackson was killed and Yogi was sent to, to Old Folsom. So that was his reputation. So to defeat him um, kind of elevated me um, by way of reputation and um, again, my, my ability to fight. So, um, and when TD approached me, you know, he's... Um, you know, his mannerisms were such that he expressed um, um, his pleasure at my ability to fight. And um, so there was nothing by way of um, uh, prospecting, um, you know, for the brand in that, you know, you, you hear a lot about blood in, blood out. You know, it sounds good. Um, and I suppose for some people, it makes a great story. Um, but I've never found that to be true, this blood in, blood out. Uh, the whole idea behind being a member of the brand really was to be your own man. The term brand comes from the um, books written by uh, Louis L'Amour. 
and um, you know, to ride for the brand. Um, you know, when I left the reservation at the age of 12, I went to live with my Nez Pierce elder on an Arabian horse ranch. So I was a horse wrangler and uh, punched cattle and, um, you know, did that uh, for the next um, eight years. Um, so I rode rodeo circuit. I was a bull rider and um, I know how to set a saddle. And um, so to me, the idea of the brand resonated. You ride for the brand. So within the context of that uh, Louis L'Amour um, writing, uh, writing for a brand was your loyalty to that brand. If you rode for a brand, then you were loyal to that brand. And uh, so that's where the term the brand came from, writing for the brand. The irony, I suppose, is that I'm the only one as a member of the brand that uh, I think ever sat a saddle. But nonetheless, the, um, the analogy is appropriate. So you were fast-tracked then to become a leader. What were your duties as a leader and who was above you? And were you like in charge of a building? Were you in charge of a prison yard? Were you like a shot caller? Could you just yeah. explain all that for, for, the, for the viewers? Because mm. it's a bit confusing for them. It is. And I understand particularly in contemporary society, the, the idea of a shot caller or you know, being in charge of a building. Those are things that came along later, much later. Um, back then, um, each individual was just that, an individual. And that's what was required to become a member of the brand, to stand on your own by yourself. And if you couldn't do that, then you weren't going to be a member of the brand. So as I evolved towards that leadership role, uh, that really became um, the point at which I introduced the idea of a business infrastructure, um, utilizing your avenues towards um, expanding uh, the infrastructure of the brand, um, more like a business, using those revenues to purchase um, properties, for instance, on the street to develop um, businesses out there so that when members of the brand uh, paroled, for instance, they had a job, use those revenues to start purchasing real estate, to buy houses, vehicles, and so on. Um, that's what I mean by infrastructure, typical business infrastructure. Um, don't need to put a lot of haha on it. it. It's not that complicated. Um, but uh, those were what I perceived my duties to be. And then I'm a firm believer in that warrior code um, and have been my whole life. So that if you are going to take the position that um, you are going to adhere to a warrior code, that there's a given work ethic associated with that code of conduct, if you will. And so that means that um, how you take care of yourself, um, your diet, your exercise, um, your capacity to educate yourself, to educate others. Here's a message from our sponsor. So Jen, have you ever like signed up for a gym or something or other and then they just keep taking this money out of your bank yes it's really really frustrating um you know if you want to cancel you want to cancel straight away do you know why free trials renew without your consent it's something that drives me mad absolutely man too of course it's a business scam out to get you <laughs> don't let greedy corporations pocket your money 
Download Truebill to take care of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions. That you don't need, want or simply forget about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Which is approximately 500 quid. (laughs) (laughs) Because these damn companies make it hard to cancel your subscriptions. Truebill makes it incredibly easy to cancel. Just link your accounts and Truebill will make it easy to cancel your subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there for when you want to cancel any unwanted subscriptions. So you don't have to. Stay on top of your spending with Truebill. Get an effortless breakdown of your finances to see where your money is going and how to improve. Truebill will notify you of important events that need your attention so you're never caught off guard again. Like Jennifer B, who says, With your help, our family has saved 500 and $87 this year on unnecessary subscriptions. I really didn't understand how Truebill could help me until we decided to save for a very large home purchase. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start cancelling today at truebill.com forward slash Sean. S-H-A-U-N. So go right now to truebill.com forward slash Sean. It could save you thousands per year. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. It's very important for the podcast production. And the links, as usual, are in the description box below this video. Um, that's, and that's what I mean by infrastructure. So those are the duties that I took on, was um, training others uh, in martial arts, how to fight, how to knife fight, how to make a knife. Um, you know, I eventually um, introduced... Um, guns into the prison um, in the form of uh, five-shot derringers. Uh, While at Old Folsom, they introduced metal detectors, so I had to figure out how to beat metal detectors, and I did. Simple physics. But um, I aligned myself with um, uh, the women that were associated with Charlie Manson, for instance, and I used them to test my theory relative to beating the metal detectors and then had them smuggle uh, buck knives uh, into Old Folsom Prison. But before I did that, I had to have them test them out at the San Francisco airport, which they did successfully, and then they smuggled them into me. Um, so that was part of um, my duties, as you say, and uh, evolving toward that uh, leadership role was to take on more aspects of, of uh, developing the infrastructure, the introduction of um, real weapons, uh, as opposed to making our own. Um, you know, at one point they brought in the National Guard and um, with mind-sweeping technology to remove all the weapons from Folsom, and they did. But simultaneously, I was introducing uh, buck knives via these women. And these were all uh, women who attended Berkeley at the time. And they were a radical group. They were associated with a, a, an outfit called Tribal Thumb. And... Um, so I used them in that capacity. Uh, so I had introduced buck knives um, into Old Folsom um, as a result of being able to defeat their uh, metal detector technology. And um, you know, at some point in the future, I also defeated their X-ray technology. And um, again, these are all um, 
other stories. Uh, but um, they have a place. Um, it's interesting. Uh, my wife, Arielle, and I are working on a book right now. Um, and when we entered into this idea of writing the book, we thought, well, you know, we'll just, we'll just write it. Uh, it doesn't happen like that. Because as you and I are discovering, you don't spend 45 years in prison. I mean, we're, we just finished part one. That's 10 chapters. And we know we have another 10 chapters to go for part two. And um, so there are a lot of stories in here. Um, and you just simply are not going to, to tell them all in one setting. But uh, I'm grateful that they have value uh, to anyone um, towards educating them about prison, um, the mindset of uh, individuals such as myself, um, insofar as uh, surviving uh, a controlled environment of prison, you know, stepping away from that eventually, which is what I did. And, uh, you know, that's, that's actually part two of the book. And uh, it also involves a lot of violence. Well, I own a publishing company. I'd be delighted to publish your book if, it, if you want, uh, if you're seeking a publisher. How many words are you at on part one? Well, we're at um, probably 80,000. Oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, and we've got another 100,000 to go. Earlier on in the story, then, you said that you couldn't read, was it, or write, or both? I couldn't and... read or write, no. I, I, as I said, I, I, uh, let me adjust this chair. Um, I uh, actually went to school, but I'm dyslexic, and no one knew that back then. And so uh, because of my athletic ability, I was able, I played football, I ran track, I did all these things that um, got me essentially D's. I got A in physical education class. I got A in woodshop. So I got sufficient A's in conjunction with D's and everything else. And I was passed in those classes primarily because I was an athlete. And, um, but when I graduated high school, I couldn't read or write. And on the reservation and it just didn't, wasn't happening. You actually went to school, but you showed up for roll call. They took the roll call and you left. Um, so, you know, by the time I got to prison, it was Chaplain Leon England that, that started me along that course. Now, an interesting sidebar to that is that when I got to Old Folsom, I'd started to learn to read and uh, some writing, but the Black Panthers and the BGF used to read Mao's Little Red Book on the tier. That was part of their discipline. And so I got a hold of a copy and I would follow along. And that really brought me up in so far as my ability to read. But my, I'm dyslexic and, and part of my problem is comprehension. It's not just what you see uh, in text or the written word, um, but it's what you hear also. And um, how your mind, your brain rather processes that. Now I've since educated myself and um, that took me a lot of years. Uh, to do that, I put myself through college and I became an alcohol and drug counselor, a life coach. I'm, I'm, I'm a biologist by training. I have a doctorate in biology wow. as, well, as well as one in business administration. Um, so it's, it's been a long journey. I'm in my seventies now, so it, it's, it's, it's been a long ride. Um, but I'm a firm believer in education. I don't care where you're at. Um, and so, you know, my wife and I started um, a nonprofit called Live, Learn, and Prosper. And we started that while I was still in prison. And uh, we still have it. We have a website. And um, 
Right now, I'm denied access to the internet. Um, I'm able to do so today only because I'm here with my wife. And um, I live up in Northern California uh, because I'm undergoing a trial uh, for charges of fraud, um, which are absurd, uh, to say the least. But I'll get through that. Uh, Meanwhile, um, the issue there is former leader of the Aryan Brotherhood, and um, there are those within um, the mainstream of the political community here in California who see that as a feather in their cap, unfortunately. Mm, That's a story in and of itself. And um, so that's what I'm dealing with presently. And imagine because it's at trial, you can't comment on that because it would be used against you, wouldn't it? That's usually, that's always the problem. You know, I really don't have a problem with that. And the reason I don't is because I'm a firm believer that you can't go wrong with the truth. As long as you're telling the truth, you don't have to worry about it. But there's a certain naivete in that thinking. Um, You know, that's how I was convicted in my original case by thinking I could just go into court and tell the truth and everything was going to be all right doesn't work like that unfortunately it's more a personality contest and um so you've got to put in the work uh which uh i'm doing i have a great uh team out of san francisco um curtis briggs and his team and um so um we're nowhere near going to trial so while I can address procedural issues to address facts, um, really wouldn't be intelligent um, other than to say that they're way off the mark. Comes yeah. with notoriety. Just, just um, I think it was Jamie Morgan. Can you confirm something he said that he, he was talking about the AB using mm-hmm. Manson's women to get stuff yeah. in he didn't specifically yeah. name you but you've just confirmed that that was your strategy and yes. another another person you mentioned that was um you had quite a few stories about i think john abba had stories about as well was kemper edmund kemper did you come across him como edmund kemper the serial killer oh <laughs> yeah i know who you're talking about yeah um that came later along with uh, the trash bag killer you know, he's the one that would um, pull people into his van, dismember them, put them in a trash bag and leave them in different dumpsters throughout L.A. But, yeah, Charlie Manson, um, I spent 10 years with him, Sirhan Sirhan, who assassinated uh, Bobby Kennedy. I spent 10 years with him, Juan Corona, um, uh, a number of them. And, um, you know, they have their stellar. And so far as Charlie, um, didn't much care for him. You know, the, the media made Charlie who he was. Uh, to me, Charlie was just a punk. Um, you know, he was a, a convict that uh, manipulated um, impressionable young people and usually through the influence of hallucinogenics. But behind the Iron Gates, he was a punk. Now, he had resources. So you weigh that. You say, okay, he's nobody he has these resources so let's use the resources and that's what i did i used his women Uh, he had some women who remained loyal to him like uh, sandra good and squeaky from and i used to talk to him on the phone um and um but you know the whole idea of um what charlie and his group did you know they 
um, killing the people that they did and the way in which, you know, Sharon Tate, my goodness, a pregnant woman cutting the baby out of her. I mean, to me, there's not a more atrocious crime. Um, and so um, typically he would have been killed uh, in prison, but they kept him in protective custody uh, for the most part in a special unit. Um, but that wasn't built until 1992. Prior to that, they kept him in a protective housing unit in Soledad. Um, so while I saw him in the 70s at Old Folsom, you know, he was pretty much shipped out before I had any association with him. But um, my um, association was more with his followers and using them as a resource to smuggle weapons and other items into the prison. Um, Charlie, not so much. Later, uh, with the 10 years I spent with him, um, you really get to know an individual in close quarters like that. There were only a few of us in the unit. And so living with Charlie for 10 years um, really told me what he was about. I have far more respect for the women that were a part of his group. Amazingly intelligent, uh, courageous, but um, unfortunately um, misguided. So was that a quid pro quo then, whereby you used his resources and he felt a degree of safety because yes. he was providing those resources? Yes. Yeah, that, that that's well said. That's the simplest way to state it. And... Um, you know, if, if you profess to have ethics, you know, in any capacity, uh, then that seems to go contrary to that code that I was talking about. But uh, you have to weigh that in any business associated with that. And um, so that's what we did. Actually, I shouldn't blame that on anybody else. That was on me. Wow. Okay, then. So... Um... You know, when you first became a leader, then mm -hmm. it sounds like you needed some accountancy skills to do all this, put all these assets, uh, real estate investments. You kind of like building, you're externalizing the brand onto the streets, aren't you? Really creating this asset yeah. value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really what it comes down to. And, and you talk about accounting skills, of which I had none. But, you know, common sense, I think, carries you through more times than not, particularly within a controlled environment. So it's, it's really more knowing your terrain and what you're dealing with and holding people accountable uh, for what they've been given responsibility for. I mean, I may have already said it, but the FBI estimated that I took $3.5 million out of Old Folsom in 1978 alone. Um, by the 70s standards, that's a lot of money. and. Um, so it's what you do with that. Where does that money come from? Usually primarily drug sales. So if you're not shooting the drugs, if the members aren't shooting the drugs into their arm and they're not partying and, and, and living large, so to speak, and then there are considerable resources available uh, to invest. Um, and that was the case. So you're taking care of the members' families. You know, you're making sure that, uh, you know, they have houses, that uh, they don't have to work, that they have vehicles, um, and so on. You know, that you're, you're looking at different business enterprises and so far as cultivating those, putting management teams in place, 
Um, and that's all, that all costs money. It, it, it's an investment, but I think um, an intelligent investment. So does it reach a point where the brand is bigger on the streets than it is in prison then because of that strategy? No, no, I don't think so. It, um, it isn't that you had that many members, but the resources that the brand had control of just in Folsom and San Quentin alone far exceeded anything that they had control of on the street. Uh, you had many members who were also members of the Hells Angels, for instance. So when they came to prison, they'd put on that, that Aryan Brotherhood coat and be Aryan Brotherhood. But when they'd leave prison, they'd put on their Hells Angel patch and would resume their activities with the Hells Angels. So um, a lot to contend with there, um, again, by way of infrastructure. Um, I mean, the smartest thing that uh, Sonny ever did was um, incorporate the Hells Angels. He went international with them. And um, from a business perspective, that was extremely intelligent. Yeah, and that was out of Arizona, wasn't it? Um, how how did the Aryan Brotherhood spread to the other states, such as Arizona? Yeah, it um, it wasn't so much a recruitment process, but you had individuals who were transferred there or were in the feds, um, and so by virtue of uh, becoming a prisoner of a federal facility in another state, they interacted with other individuals who were then state prisoners or federal prisoners. And so you have a recruitment process associated with that. So you establish a power base um, in other states, primarily through the feds and in the feds itself. Um, so once your power base is established, um, then you naturally branch out. You can use, um, for instance, we use the subpoena process um, in the judicial system to pull people from other states and uh, federal penitentiaries to have confabs uh, here in California, where you would discuss issues, priorities, agendas, and then you would send them back and they would um, assimilate that into the uh, various structures wherever they might be. Arizona. You're a businessman. I know you understand that. Arizona Department of Corrections, it's got like the charter, I think, for the Aryan Brotherhood on their website. Mm -hmm. Now, did, did you guys have a charter? You said it went back to 1968. Was, was there a charter at inception or was that something that developed over the years? It's something that developed over the years, that, that charter inception. It's, it's like, like the Hells Angels. You have various charters. You have the Oakland chapter and, and um, you know, the San Bernardino chapter and so on. Um, so, and that actually varied, you know, if you take and you look at the Texas Aryan Brotherhood, they were more paramilitary um, than any other group, but still a part of the Aryan Brotherhood. Um, you know, you have that survivalist element, if you will. Um, so, um, what isn't oftentimes addressed, and it was one of the things that I um, instituted at Old Folsom, was counterintelligence. Um, up to that point, there had been no counterintelligence used on behalf of the organization. And um, I knew, for instance, that staff had conduits that were feeding them information, um, not only about the Aryan Brotherhood, but about the Black Panthers, which were very militant at that time. 
and as well as the black gorilla family and so on. And so um, the counterintelligence was simply involving knowing who those conduits were, feeding them information, and then seeing how that information came back to you. That would pretty much tell you what you were dealing with by way of counterintelligence. So you could feed misinformation to those conduits to feed to staff. And it was very effective, actually. Um, you know, when I reached the point where I just made the decision to step away from the brand, um, I got a real um, understanding of how that counterintelligence had worked, just based on what's, what law enforcement thought they knew about the brand, which was all that misinformation that I'd fed to them through their conduits. So, you know, it, it pretty much told me that it was effective. As the brand got uh, picked up in the other states, then if you if you wanted something done in Texas, could you just issue an order to Texas and they would carry that out, no questions asked, or was there politics involved between the states and rivalries? Eventually, it became just that, the latter. Um, but initially, we established a, a council and a commission of individuals that oversaw the workings of the brand nationwide. I was a member of that three-man council. I was voted into that um, at one point. Uh, I didn't spend too long there um, because of events that occurred that I was in disagreement with. Uh, that's the taking of innocent life. Um, you know, in adhering to a warrior code, I believe that um, if a man wants to go head up I don't have a problem with that, even to this day, even though I've taken a vow of nonviolence. But I understand that is my point. What I don't agree with and what I won't condone and, and wouldn't condone back then is the taking of innocent life. And by that, I mean individuals who have no party to uh, your activities, uh, particularly behind the Iron Gates. So mm, perhaps the best example I use is um, the case of Margot Compton. Now, Margot was a, um, she was a masseuse for the Hells Angels in one of their massage parlors. She testified against the second command of the Hells Angels, Buck Garrett, um, in a pimping and pandering case. He received four years. The feds hit her out in Oregon. She was a meth user. And of course, as you and everybody else probably knows, the Aryan Brotherhood, I'm not the Aryan Brotherhood, the uh, Hells Angels controlled the meth market. So once she was in Oregon, she contacted her connection in the Bay Area to score. That connection contacted the Hells Angels and Buck Garrett sent two shooters up to where she was hit out by the feds in Oregon. They entered the house. Her boyfriend was on the couch. They shot him in the head. They walked into the bedroom. She had two six-year-old baby girls. They wrapped their arms around their teddy bears, held Margot while they shot the girls in the head, and then killed Margot. Now, I don't hold with that. Under any circumstances, that's what I mean by innocent people. You know, I won't condone it. I won't be a part of it. So where the brand is concerned at one point, uh, the decision was made to start executing family members of individuals who were testifying against the brand. I don't believe in that. You see. So at that point is when I made the decision to step away from the brand. Now, the problem with that, Sean, is that as I've been discussing, I took um, a lead role in the restructuring of the Aryan Brotherhood. 
And um, if you really think about that for a second, that also includes the idea of reaching that point where individuals would decide to take the life of innocent individuals because they can't get to the individual that's testifying against them. You know, I could plead um, naivete, but even that doesn't wash with me. So I was of the opinion, and I hold to that opinion, that just as I'd taken a responsibility for building the infrastructure of the brand, I had a responsibility to bring it down and did so, um, even to this day, um, conversation that we're having. You know, it's a matter of educating. Um, a lot of the uh, talks I give, interviews I give, lectures I give are toward edu educating the public uh, as to the caliber of individual that we're talking about here. You know, anybody that will take it upon themselves to murder, assassinate innocent people um, is not somebody that, you know, I want around my family. You see, my loved ones. And I certainly don't want to see them to be able to integrate themselves into the social fabric of our society. And so... I believe my responsibility is to ensure um, that I do everything within my power to educate not only law enforcement, but the public in general about that. But trying to get out of it, though, isn't it like that comes with a lot of danger, surely? Well, it does. I mean, I'm not in a witness protection program. I'm not going to be in a witness protection program. I'm going to live my life. You know, it's, it's, look, some things haven't changed. I'm not going to allow anyone or anything to dictate um, my circumstances, how I live my life. You see, I'm, uh, I'm not a fool. You see, I'm not going to invite catastrophe, catastrophic events, disaster in any capacity. I'm not going to invite violence. But by the same token, I'm going to speak out. Uh, because I believe I have that responsibility. Um, you know, I, I removed myself um, from any association with my family, um, including my wife, so as not to bring harm upon them. Um, but it's no secret where I'm at. And uh, again, that's not an invitation to anybody but it's simply to say that uh, I'm going to live my life regardless. And um, if you come, come right. It's that simple. Because you said there was an attempt as recently as what, seven years ago? Yes. How did that come about? Well, um, you know, I had a number of attempts while I was, uh, you know, the Margot Compton case that I mentioned, I testified in that case against the Hells Angels. Um, and again, I want to emphasize that I'm not a witness for the prosecution. I'm not a witness for the defense. I went before a grand jury, a closed session, and they asked me a lot of questions and I answered them truthfully. And as a result of that, they indicted these individuals. They put them on trial and they asked me if I would come to court and testify before a jury. I agreed. And I did just that. But I emphasized to the jury as I'm emphasizing to you now, I'm not there. For the prosecution, I'm not there for the defense. I'm there for the jury to tell them what I know 
And what they decide to do with that is their responsibility as jurors. You see, um, you know, I, when I stepped away from the brand, I spent an additional 35 years in prison. So I didn't receive anything for anything I've ever done. You know, I've made films, training films, I've testified in court, but that isn't because I received some kind of deal or I was released from prison early because I certainly wasn't. Um, or that I received 30 pieces of silver. My life became much more difficult as a result of that and remains so to this day. Um, but again, um, it's important to me. It's important to me to continue to educate people. Um, that's why you and I are having this conversation because I see the opportunity in this conversation um, to express my beliefs and so far as the individuals that we're talking about and let your audience decide yay or nay as to whether or not they like them or otherwise. Um, but I think that's the essence of education. Once you know, then there's really no excuse. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a quick word from our sponsor. Know what that sound means? It's more sales being racked up on Shopify. What do you think of Shopify, Jen? I absolutely love Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to sell, grow, and make money for your business. Have you used it to boost your business? 100%, <laughs> yeah. So Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell from anywhere in the world. From creating your online shop in your own look. To finding new customers to scaling your burning idea. You can do it all from one place. With no need for skills in design or coding. It's how every minute of every day, a new seller makes their first sale with Shopify and you can join them. So what is your favourite UK-based business that's found success with Shopify? It's got to be Gymshark. They have grown massively thanks to Shopify. Now it's your turn to start selling today with Shopify for free. And thanks to 24-7 support, Shopify is there to help you every step of the way. Sign up for a free 14-day trial at shopify.co.uk slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Sean right now to grow your business today. So that's shopify.co.uk forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. Um, you know, you got a lot of hate groups in this country right now. And so education becomes critical toward understanding that i do i work with others in so far as self-defense um because i keep my hand in in so far as martial arts um the practice of aikido um there are a number of things that go along with that you know and i would encourage everyone um to educate themselves in so far as the very subject um that we're having the discussion about today it's um, it's about organized crime. And it's not that I, I'm standing against anybody, but I'm standing for a principle and that I hold dear as a human being. And if I'm striving to do anything, it's to be the best human being I can possibly be. So over that 45, um, it's 35 years then, you've already done 10. What was the first yeah. attempt on your life? Well... And that was it all the way back to Tracy. You know, that's because I was practicing my ways, uh, my native ways in the garden 
And um, the priest, there was two chapels and there was a garden in between. It was the same size. And like I said, Chaplain England used to allow me to go out there and I would go out and sing my songs and dance and, and um, say my prayers. And uh, back then, not a lot of people knew about native ways. In particular, did you see um, a white boy out there um, dancing, half naked, uh, singing songs, drumming? Um, so the priest assumed that I was a devil worshiper, unfortunately. And he took that to the uh, gang that had a uh, power base at that time. They uh, solicited um, the assistance of uh, parishioners from the um, Catholic chapel. And, um, you know, I've told this story before, and I've heard people say, oh, you know, he claims to have defeated seven trained assassins for the Nuestra Familia. Mm, it sounds good, but it's not true. Uh, you know, there were seven of them. All seven had knives. Matter of fact, the knives were taped into their hands. And I did defeat them. But they weren't warriors. They weren't fighters. They'd probably never been in a fight in their life. And um, it was more like Keystone Cops. <laughs> I mean, it really was. I mean, you know, um, I'm sure that, you know, I could make something out of it. But um, that would be very disingenuous. Um, so it, it's, it's not something that, uh, you know, I'm going to have a belt buckle made that says seven in one blow or anything like that. Um, At moments like that, Mike, how do you stay calm and go into action? How have you trained your mind like, like this? That was my elder that uh, facilitated that. You know, when he taught me martial arts, he taught me a vast array of different styles with, and encouraged me to make it my own. So, you know, when I was riding the rodeo circuit as a bull rider, I was a youngster and I would best the elder men in the bull ride and, uh, you know, they wanted that, that gold belt buckle. And, um, but at night we all camped out in the olive groves around the rodeo and, uh, they get liquored up and I don't drink, but, uh, they get liquored up and then they come looking for me because they want to best me where they couldn't best me in, in the rodeo ring. And, um, so I kind of honed my skills fighting wise, um, see, and again, these are a bunch of liquored up old cowboys. Uh, that couldn't really realistically whip their way out of a wet paper bag. Um, so, um, but it allowed me to hone my skills with multiple attackers and um, to use the techniques that my elder taught me. And uh, so that when I did go to prison, you know, um, now the difference I suppose is that, you know, when you're, you're fighting a bunch of liquored up cowboys, uh, it's actually, well, I don't want this to be taken wrong, but it can be fun, um, you know, because they're liquored up. Um, so, but in prison, it's a different thing. So when you knock a man down, say, um, outside the rodeo ring in your campsite there, you know, you step back and you may be laughing and you tell him you, you, you drunk old bastard, stay down. And, um, you know, he may or may not, but um, in prison, when you put somebody down, you put them down and you follow up on it. You don't allow them to get up. And that was the difference. I had to change um, my thinking. 
you know, that idea of, you know, a man of honor steps back and says, okay, I knocked you down, go ahead and get up and let's commence our fight. Doesn't work like that, particularly when you have multiple attackers. So that was the first uh, altercation of any significance. I mean, I'd been, um, when I first got to the reception center, um, I got into it with a fella that, um, um, he was more about um, shaming people by beating them. He was a bully. Let's just, I'll just put it straight out there. He was a bully. So he and I ended up getting into it. And, and, um, but that was just um, a very quick fight. And um, when I was in the county jail, um, I was in a number of altercations, um, not the least of which was taking over the jail at one point. Um, Another story. Uh, so L.A. County? No, it was Orange County. And um, so for all my um, talking about uh, being nonviolent and deploring violence, I've had my share of it. What was the closest you ever come to death? I've had a number of, of instances. Um, probably the closest I've ever come to death was at the hands of guards who, um, <coughs> excuse me, I was, um, oh, there was a young man by the name of Preston Tate, Corcoran, and uh, he'd gotten into it with a guard uh, on the tier, and uh, he ended up spitting in the guard's face. So the guard was a floor officer. The next day, he went up into the tower and he set it up so the two of the young man's, he was black and his two of his enemies were Mexican. He put them out in the yard together, went up into the gun tower, grabbed the nine millimeter and shot him in the head, killed him, obviously. So um, I was working as a clerk at that time. And um, in other words, I was in the program office. So two hours before this happened, I was brought the central file of all three men and was told to write it as if this man had been shot in the head. Hadn't happened yet. So when it did happen, I went to a lieutenant and told him what had happened, essentially. So he did an investigation. He ended up going to the feds. Eight guards at Corcoran ended up being indicted. And um, meanwhile, I was testifying in Oregon against the Hells Angels. And so there was this push to discredit me based on the mm, thinking that I was going to testify against the guards who had been killing prisoners at Corcoran. And uh, the Department of Justice had an investigation going on. Matter of fact, um, the Senate Select Committee with um, the legislature here in California conducted a hearing. And um, the lieutenant that I was telling you about that I took this issue to testified before them. And uh, when you read the transcript, um, the chairperson says to this particular individual, she stops the hearing. She says, excuse me, but are you wearing a bulletproof vest? And he said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she said, may I ask why? She said, well, because I fear for my life. They've already done a drive-by shooting on my house. In other words, fellow guards had done a drive-by shooting at his house uh, to give you an idea of um, the caliber of, of individuals uh, that you're dealing with. Um, the guards had created their own gang, essentially. 
And eventually that was brought down. Great book about it called The Green Wall. And uh, the individual who wrote that was a member of the um, investigative services unit there. So, and he got the story right. But uh, I was a part of all that, seeing all that. And um, so one of the worst beatings um, that I ever took was that uh, I was scheduled to go out to court and uh, these guards had just been indicted. So they came in and they chained me up and I thought I was going out to court. Well, I wasn't. Once they got me chained up, uh, they took me into a room and, and beat me pretty severely um, to the point where I actually thought I was going to die. Um, so that uh, I think the only thing that saved my life, kind of strange, I was choking on my own blood. And um, I brought up the blood and I spit it at him. And I made the ridiculous comment, that's all you got? And for some reason, Sean, that stopped him. Wow. Yeah. So, um, but then it was learned by law enforcement that I was working with that I had been subjected to this beating. So now there's another investigation uh, into that. Eventually, they brought down uh, these guards who had formed the Green Wall, their own, their own gang. And uh, they called them the Sharks. And um, a lot of prisoners endured beatings at the hand hands of the sharks. And uh, ultimately, that uh, ended up in an investigation and uh, a lot of people being fired uh, from the Department of Corrections. Some reinstated, unfortunately, but uh, a lot of them being fired nonetheless. Wow. So. It- People hearing these stories, and I know I've had a lot of comments on uh, Jamie Monkin and John Abbott's videos. People who've been in prison in like recent years mm-hmm. hear these stories and they think, no, that's not how the gang rules are. That's not possible, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, how, how different has, because you've been here for 45 years, how different was prison culture back then in the 70s versus the modern industrial, you know, prisons? that we see now and the explosion, the mass incarceration, the war on drugs, it's just changed drastically over the years, hasn't it? The the prison rules and the philosophy and how people are housed and the surveillance, the technology, the camp, the introduction of the cameras, people uh, behaviors change because of that. So Mm. could you just get into that a bit? Yeah. I mean, it did really where it started to change was with uh, Dick Novi. Dick Novi formed the, um, California Correctional Officers Association. It's a guards union. And he did that back in actually the 50s. But it wasn't until his son, Don Novi, took over in the 70s that they really began to facilitate change. Um, There was a famous commentator out of the Bay Area that made the comment on one of his newscasts that if you ever want to see the dregs of society, stand outside San Quentin during shift change. <laughs> yeah. And it was really that bad. So, um, you know, conversely, back in the 70s, you, you had the end of the Vietnam War. So a lot of your prison guards were Vietnam veterans. And a lot of them suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, but nobody knew what that was back then. We now have a, a, a bigger handle on it. And um, so... Um, oftentimes guards, for instance, when George Jackson took over 
the um, adjustment center, him, him and Yogi Pinnell. And, um, you know, he smuggled the gun in via his attorney, but it was also the black guards that supplied um, access to taking over the adjustment center. Um, so you had um, black guards aligned themselves with black prisoners, white guards aligned themselves with white prisoners and so on. And so it was, you know, very chaotic. Um, so, you know, um, I was being escorted onto the tier one day at San Quentin and, uh, one of my enemy had cut the bars out of the cell and was on his way out of the cell. I was being under escort by two guards. They turned around and ran off the tier and left me there in handcuffs. Now I had had it set up so that I went to a cell designated cell and had the handcuffs removed and was given a knife. But um, the issue was, is the person that was coming out of his cell actually got stuck and he had a big old bone crusher in his hand and I pushed him back into his cell, gave him his life. Um, but at any rate, I, I'm getting off track again. Um, so the change occurred with, with really Don Novi, who gave guards peace officer status. And he did that by using the California Highway Patrol's memorandum of understanding with the governor. And um, so um, in doing so, it gave guards peace officer status. They were now allowed to carry a weapon. Their training became far more significant at the academy and what they were trained for. So there was this um, transition. It took years, but they began that process, you know, evolving toward professionals. And uh, they took on a paramilitary type style. Um, in their approach to dealing with prison and prisoners and particularly gangs. And so, um, again, um, developing their intelligence as it relates to that and uh, creating more checks and balances upon what they did and how they did it. Um, so as a result, you saw uh, an implosion, really, of um, prison construction. When I came into the prison system, the only two actual prisons were San Quentin and Folsom. And um, then you had, I think, five or six institutions. Total, there were 14,000 prisoners in the state of California when I went to prison. There are now over 170,000. And that's as a result of the building of 30 additional prisons. So this tough on crime approach, um, you know, along with um, contending with um, a new type of prisoner. You know, we used to be called convicts. The new prisoner was an inmate. And uh, his mindset, his philosophy, uh, the psychology associated with that was as an inmate. Um, and I'll just simply say that it was inferior. Um, you know, I've heard some refer to them as inferior males. Um, and you see that by virtue of the crimes that they commit. And um, so, you know, and then, of course, that increased the status of the gangs. And, you know, now you're getting into this idea of shot caller and everything else so that you have um, a gang who is established. But rather than use their own, they'll designate shot callers. So they'll give somebody what's called the keys to the car on a yard or in a facility or in a building. 
You see, now they're under the protection of that gang. So everyone else does that particular individual's bidding under penalty of death at the hands of the gang. And that makes the difference. Um, but it goes even further than that. You know, you had a um, uh, 180 design, you had a 270 design prisons, um, you know, the cell structure itself. I mean, you had prisons that now are housing 10,000 inmates, you see, in one complex of different prisons. Um, you saw the uh, quality of even foodstuffs diminished drastically. When I came to prison, um, you know, San Quentin, Folsom, you know, they had their own dairies, they had their own pig farms, they had their own cattle, uh, they had, you know, produce they generated. I mean, and all that came back uh, at Old Folsom. I mean, you know, it was, food was great. You know, first day I come in, I remember, old man came down the tier and said, you want to eat? And I said, you bet. And um, he came back. Back then we had metal trays. And uh, this tray was loaded with veal parmesan, tossed green salad. I mean, you know, uh, garlic bread. And uh, next morning he came with a cinnamon roll that covered the whole tray. All that was done away with. Everything became processed foods. You know, the cheaper, the better. The dairy farms still there, but all their product is sold to outside vendors and say the skim milk from butter and ice cream is now packaged and prisoners get that. You see, that's the extent of what they get. Now, as opposed to whole milk, fresh butter, and so on. Um, so the quality of living has suffered drastically. Um, the judiciary suffered drastically as a at the hands, I'll say, of the legislature by virtue of the tough-on-crime laws that were enacted, three strikes, not the least of which, um, facilitated the incarceration of thousands of individuals. You know, some for the theft of a loaf of bread was sentenced to 25 years to life as a result. That's absurd. So now there's been a turnaround in that. And that's one of the reasons I'm currently facing charges, so I'm told, is because I was released under those new legislative enactments of uh, Youth Offender Act and the Elder Offender Act, both of which I qualified for. So after 45 years, um, I was given that consideration as a youthful offender. And also now, I also fit the category of an elder offender because of my age. So that is actually what facilitated my release. The governor of Calif California had the right to refuse my release, but he didn't. And that's because he individually looked at my case and saw you know, the progress that I had made. Um, so he made the decision to release me, but there is a body of people, not the least of which is the um, District Attorneys Association here in California who opposed my release. And um, they did so um, because of the Youthful Offender Act uh, and how that impacted others who, who were also released. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to turn back the clock and repeal the Youthful Offender Act.
So since I was the beneficiary of that, by charging me with the crimes they currently have me charged with, um, their position is that you see what happens when you release people. He should, should never have been released from prison. We want to put him back in prison for the rest of their life. And that's their intent right now wow. is to return me to prison for the rest of my life. And um, it's pure politics, nothing but. Yeah. How does it feel to have that hanging over your head after you've already done 45 years? Well, um, it's not so much how I feel. It, it, it's more how my wife feels and the rest of my family and the impact that it has upon them. It's more about if they succeed in reincarcerating me, the impact that it has upon others who have been waiting years to be released, who have worked hard for that release. And so it's not about me. Uh, it's, it's, it's about other people and the impact that it has, the communities, the families, the individuals that are still behind the iron gates. That's what's important here. That's the issue here. And um, so why I would dearly love to be more outspoken about the politics involved here um, by getting into the absurdity of the charges itself. Um, as you and I discussed earlier, I'm actually prevented from doing so. Um, even to the extent that I'm talking now, I really anticipate a gag order at some point. Um, just so the District Attorneys Association, who are the ones that went public with this to begin with, big blow up in the press about arresting me, former member, former leader of the Aryan Brotherhood arrested, you see, and that's what they're using, that big headline. But now, when I come out and I talk, they say, oh, we need a gag order. We can't have him talking about this. You see, what's wrong with that picture? So I'm in a fight, and I know it. And um, I know what's at stake. So I'm going to take my time with it. And um, I'm going to educate the public to the extent that I'm allowed. And um, I'm going to hope for a collective understanding of what the real issue is here. Could you let people know about Shot Caller then? The movie. Mm. What do you think when you see movies like that? I assume you've seen it. I haven't. Um, I don't watch movies like that because they're basically inaccurate. If you look at a movie, just as American Me, you see, I mean, um, what was it? I was recently told that uh, 10 individuals that were associated with that movie, movie have been assassinated by the Mexican Mafia. And, um, you know, the lead actor almost was threatened with his life. I was told that he paid him off, you see. But the whole issue was, was that the facts were misrepresented, you know, in that, you know. I understand the sensationalism, and I understand that people enjoy that. They're entertained by it. But speaking as someone who's actually lived it, um, there's nothing entertaining about it. You know, my approach to contending with that is to educate the public about it. You know, I understand the sensationalism and it has its value, um, particularly if that value is educative. Um, 
But for the most part, when you see shot collar and other things like that, they don't even begin to touch the surface of the reality of what we're talking about here. Um, you know, by simply just telling the truth, by telling stories that are that are truthful, that has a far more chilling effect than anything Hollywood could ever produce. You know, that was the idea behind writing a book. You want to know the real deal? Then read it. You have questions? By all means, ask them. I'll do my best to answer them. Same in this. Should your audience have questions? You want follow-up? You've got it. You see, I think that's the real value in doing what we're doing. I've got two more movie questions, though, before we, we t- uh, close what, this. Have, okay. have, have you seen Shawshank Redemption or American History X? Shawshank Redemption I have seen. Um, just because I love the outcome. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, see, that's real. That's keeping it real. But, you know, the elements associated with that, you know, survival, and see, that's the thing to remember is that it is about survival. Uh, you know, what I'd like to get away from, Sean, is this attitude is, you know, that you, you see in, in programs in Hollywood in primarily uh, law enforcement flicks, um, you know, where they say, you know what, man, if you don't tell me what I want to know, you're going to go to the big house. And, you know, when you drop the soap in the shower, you're going to get it. See, that's the thing I want to get away from. See, there's nothing funny about that. Not a damn thing. I've been on the tier and heard a man raped. Brutally raped. And there's nothing funny about it. Nothing. You see, I've seen life taken for a pack of cigarettes. There's nothing funny about that. You see, an individual's punishment for having committed a crime is that they're incarcerated. They're not sent there to be punished, to be brutalized. And where the system is going now, thank goodness, is towards dealing with trauma and drug addiction. And those things will help these individuals evolve in their humanity so that when they are released back to society, they're a productive member of that society. I think that's far more important than advocating you know, some kind of brutality or torture as a result of having committed a crime against society. The vast majority of crimes committed are primarily due to addiction. So let's deal with the addiction. You know, that's trauma-based. It's a disease of the brain. You know, someday we ought to talk about epigenetics and the significance of epigenetics as it relates to the very subject that we're talking about, not just incarceration, but trauma in general. You know, it's, it, as a biologist, it, it's a passion of mine. And um, I think it's going to take us somewhere in the evolution of our own humanity toward understanding that and the impact of trauma. I've learned so much from interviewing people in the deep end of addiction. I mean, hundreds of people mm. that have ended up in prison because of crimes to finance the addiction, but yeah. the vast majority of them, extreme childhood trauma, uh, victims of pedophiles parents yes. just threw them away living on the streets and it, it, it just opened my eyes really to you know these people opening up and telling me their stories it just gave me a, a massive education that childhood trauma is 
perhaps the biggest root cause of crime? Yes, we are in agreement. We are. And it's something that you would think as a society that we would want to address. You know, and it's not just prisoners or addicts that suffer from trauma. You'd be hard pressed to find anybody that at some point in time in their life has not suffered some form of trauma. And um, wouldn't it be great um, to provide some kind of resolution for that toward not just recovery, but their own sense of well-being, their sense of identity? You see, and you do that, in my opinion, uh, through love, not hate. You see, and that's something I hope that you and I at some point in time have the opportunity to talk about hate groups and what facilitates that hate and how do we contend with it individually and as a society. I think, you know, you deal with youth yourself at risk youth. So you know the significance of what I'm talking about. You see, and, you know, it's, it's how we take that and we present that to the public in general that helps educate them, brings them to a point of understanding the significance of the very subject that we're talking about. Any question that anybody has about my incarceration or what prison is really like, feel free. I'll answer the question. You see? But in the meantime, let's look at the other issues too. I think it's critical. Well, being housed under Sheriff Joe Arpaio's regime, was a rapid education in, you know, the, mm. the, the, the prisoners were just getting re-traumatized mm. by the house of horrors that he created. And he didn't give a damn. He just prided himself on it. And yeah. the guards were saying, you know, no one gives a shit about prisoners. Who, who cares? Mm. We can get away with yes. all this. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's tragic. You see, the ones that get lost in that shuffle are the families. You see, no one ever talks about the families and what they suffer. And they do suffer, you see. And it extends to the communities, the impact upon the communities. You know, it's referred to as the ripple effect. And it has an enormous impact, enormous. But, you know, let's talk about the families. Let's talk about the communities. You know, let's advocate our perspectives, whatever they may be. Let's have a discussion. It's not about uh, standing against anything. It's standing for what you believe. And to me, that's really what it's about. Yeah, and it's great. You're making positive changes in the world, Mike. We're almost at two hours then. So I'll, really? um, I'll just tell the viewers that they can leave questions for you in the comments section. Sure. And yes. if, I can't, if I can't get John Abbott on the next one, then if you're up for another one, I'll get oh, some. I'll get some questions, perhaps off him and and, and Jamie Morgan Kane as well. Have you, yeah, you do that. have you managed to watch either of any of those the stuff I've done with those guys? Yes, with with John particularly. I what, like John. What do you think of it? Well, John's an old convict, and that's what you get is um, a dose of perspective based on reality. In other words, what you're getting is a real conversation. You're not getting um, force fed some nonsense. John keeps it real. And that's why I like him. You do everything you can to get him on. And uh, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Because there's a dialogue as a result of that experience that comes naturally. 
See, we used to say, you know what, man, the push and pull is on the ball and chalk. That means the bull's on the walk. See, and men like John understand that. You see. I'm sure he's going to be uh, delighted to hear that coming from you, Mike. Is there <laughs> anything you'd like to say to the viewers then in conclusion? I appreciate the opportunity to be here, Sean. That's really what it comes down to, you know, to, to speak my truth, uh, to tell my stories. Um, and, you know, th- th- there's no cautionary note in that. Um, I invite anybody that uh, has a question to ask it. And if I can answer it, I will to the best of my ability. But um, more importantly, I'm grateful. I wake up every morning extremely grateful um, for my life and for the opportunity to evolve. I appreciate you and what you're doing. And um, I would encourage everyone um, to the best of their ability to embrace their humanity with all the love in their heart. And are you available if you want to send you a message if people have watched this? Are you, are you on the social media sites or anything like that? Right now I'm denied access to the internet, but I'm working on that in court. And once I get over that hurdle, um, I've not only got the book coming out, but they can go on my, um, my website at livelearnandprosper.org and, um, and feel free to discuss whatever they wish to discuss, ask any question they want to ask. Um, you know, I would normally be on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that. But like I said, right now I have to limit it to just my website. And um, I am going to start my own podcast channel. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have the studio for it. Um, perhaps you'll um, assist me in so far as uh, understanding how one goes about that. Um, because it's, it's all new to me. Everything to me is new. There's this enormous learning curve. So for you or anybody else that wants to weigh in and say, here's how you do it, please feel free. Well, you've got a really good setup there, Mike. Your, your audio quality is excellent. Mm. You, you, your image is, is clear. So I think you're already ahead of the game. There. It's just a case of getting people to interview. We've, I've got tons uh, I could send you away if, if, if that's a road you want to go down. I think it is actually, you know, I'll be doing this with my wife, Ariel. She's a mitigation specialist. So she's worked on death row for the last 20 years. You talk about stories. I mean, aside from that, she's absolutely brilliant. I mean, (laughs) uh, she she, she is. I mean, you know, well, there's a lot I could say there, but I'll, I'll save that for another time. But um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I'm sitting here with a, an L12 Zoom mixer and, um, you know, the ATM um, Mini Pro switcher. You know, I've got a Panasonic camera in front of me. I got the lights up. I've got the uh, Shure M70 mic. So, yeah, I'm ready to go. You are ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, huge thank you, Mike, for spending time with us today. Really appreciate it. It's an absolute honor. Like I said in the beginning, just the magnitude of your story. It's definitely going to be a whole series of books. Can't wait to read them. Mm. And uh, for the viewers then, thank you for staying with us, watching this podcast. Please put your questions for Mike in the comments. It's um, a unique opportunity to ask someone who's got, you know, such 
unusual life experience mm. questions. So we look forward to that. Um, if you want to watch our stuff with Abbott, I'll, I'll put that down in the description box as well. I'll also put the website for Mike down in the description box as well if you want to check his website out. So, yeah, thanks again. Fas- absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Sean. Cheers. So Gadfly Press is hugely proud to announce the publication of Killing Escobar and Soldier Stories by Peter McAleese. If you've not seen our podcast we've done with Peter, check it out. And the book is now available worldwide on Amazon in all formats. And Peter was hired out of Scotland, mercenary by the Cali Cartel, to assassinate Pablo Escobar, one of the most famous gangsters in the history of the world. The mission is all detailed in the book, as well as Peter's many soldier stories from various countries and continents of the world. So, mind-blowing, gripping, as seen on BBC TV. This is the book, the story that Killing Escobar is based on, Peter McAleese's testimony. The link will be in the description box below the video, available worldwide on Amazon. Cheers.